tonight on PBS News Weekend. Egypt's foreign minister on the effect Israel's war in Gaza is having on its neighbors and hopes for a ceasefire. Then farmers in revolt. From France to India, why farmers are protesting against climate change policies, red tape, and crop prices. Most of the world's food is produced by small farms, family farms, and they're the ones who don't have the depth, the financial depth, and the resources to really shoulder this burden in the way that they're being asked to. And as space launches become more frequent, what they're all doing to the atmosphere. Good evening, I'm John Yang. Now that the mother of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been formally notified of her son's death, she's pressing for details of how the 47-year-old died in a remote penal colony in the Arctic. In hopes of seeing her son's body, Ludmila Navalnaya and Navalny's lawyer went to the morgue where she was told he had been taken. But once they got there, the facility was closed. She wants his remains handed over for burial. Russia says that won't happen until its investigation is over. There's no official cause of death. Navalny's lawyer says he was murdered. In Moscow, Navalny's supporters risked arrest to lay flowers at a memorial to him at a monument for victims of Soviet-era purges. Since word of Navalny's death, Russian police have arrested more than 300 people across the country. Ukrainian forces have withdrawn from the devastated eastern city of Avdivka, handing Russia a key victory. Outnumbered Ukrainian soldiers, desperately short of ammunition, had withstood a Russian assault for four months. At the Munich Security Conference, Vice President Kamala Harris met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Zelensky said he's hoping for a break in the months-long congressional logjam that's bottled up U.S. aid from Ukraine. We are counting on this positive decision of the Congress. For us, this package is vital. We do not currently look into alternatives because we are counting on the United States as, as on our partner, strategic partner. When we talk about the role of America as it relates to our support for Ukraine, we must be unwavering and we cannot play political games. Harris said there is no plan B if Congress doesn't pass the $60 billion aid package. There is only plan A, she told reporters. The Senate overwhelmingly approved the aid bill, but House Speaker Mike Johnson said he won't even bring it up for a vote. Also at the Munich conference, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Israeli officials to talk about negotiations for the release of the hostages still held by Hamas and a pause in Israeli fighting. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel would not take part in the next round of talks because of Hamas demands he labeled as delusional. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant told reporters that Rafah was the next center of gravity in the war, but he wouldn't say when an anticipated ground operation will begin. And the Food and Drug Administration has approved a novel cancer treatment to tackle an aggressive form of the deadly skin cancer melanoma. The treatment, called Amtagvi, uses a patient's own immune cells from the tumor. In clinical trials, more than 30% of participants had their tumors either shrink or disappear altogether. The maker of the treatment said the U.S. retail price is expected to be $515,000 per patient. Still to come on PBS Newsweekend, why farmers around the world are protesting and the growing problem of pollution in Earth's atmosphere as the space race ramps up.
This is PBS News Weekend from WETA Studios in Washington, home of the PBS NewsHour, weeknights on PBS. This week, Israel stepped up its bombing across the Gaza Strip and talks aimed at the release of the hostages held by Hamas and an Israeli pause in fighting have bogged down. Since October 7th, more than 28,000 Palestinians and around 1,200 Israelis have died. Today at the Munich Security Conference, Nick Schifrin sat down with Egypt's foreign minister. They discussed his country's role in mediating the ceasefire talks and the effect the war is having on the region. Mr. Foreign Minister, thank you very much. Egypt has been in the middle of negotiations for a deal that would pause the war and release Israeli hostages being held in Gaza and also Palestinians being detained by Israel. Cairo hosted a meeting a few days ago for this. Has there been any progress since that meeting? Well, I think they were uh, productive meetings. Uh, of course, they are sensitive meetings, and uh, I will refrain from going into details, uh, but we will continue to exert every effort that they should be productive, that they should uh, fulfill the needs for a uh, ceasefire, even though a limited one, but one that necessarily would have to uh, translate into a, a more sustainable and, and a complete cessation of hostilities. It's important that we uh, move ahead in, in terms of the negotiations, uh, recognizing that these are uh, difficult issues uh, that uh, both parties will vie for uh, the best possible deal. Uh, and it is up to us to encourage them to show flexibility yeah. and moderation. Today, the head of Hamas, Ismail Khania, uh, in a statement said Hamas will not accept anything less than a complete cessation of the aggression, withdrawal of the occupation army from Gaza, and lifting of the unjust siege. That is something, of course, that Israel has already before even the statement is made, rejected. Does that kind of statement doom any progress in negotiations? Well, I think we've heard statements also from the other side that uh, also raise the bar of uh, the position and, and might complicate the current negotiations. But it is going to be incumbent on the ability of both sides to continue to maintain this uh, ongoing dialogue, this mediation so as to find the point of convergence. As you put it, the other side, uh, Israeli leaders, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this week, uh, have threatened publicly to pull out of talks, not send the head of the Mossad, David Barnea. Do you believe Israel is negotiating in good faith? Again, we hope that uh, all will recognize uh, the consequences of uh, continuing this military conflict and its impact, uh, which is unprecedented in the 21st, even the 20th century, the scale of human lives, uh, children and women, now exceeding 20,000, have uh, been killed. Uh, we've uh, gone beyond the 100,000 injured, and we need to deal with it uh, from all of its perspectives. Is Egypt building a walled enclosure near the border with Israel in case Gazans escape? from Gaza into Sinai. We have uh, consolidated our uh, border fortifications between Egypt and Gaza over the last four or five years. This was part of our uh, demolition of the uh, tunnel network. Uh, we continue to have maintenance uh, around the Rafah area because of the volume of um, assistance and, uh, and trucks that uh, need to, to enter. But with all due respect, sir, there are satellite images that show what seemed to be a walled enclosure, a kind of box that presumably Palestinians could go into if they escape through the border? Well, we, we 
again, I don't have any specific knowledge of what is the construction being undertaken, but what we have indicated is that the displacement into our territory is a red line, and we appreciate all those who have also indicated that they refuse displacement into Egyptian territory, but rhetoric is not enough. I think the, those who have indicated that policy should also indicate that there will be consequences if that was to happen. Have you warned Israel that if Israel proceeds with a military operation in Rafah, the peace treaty could be a threat? Again, the peace treaty has endured over the last 40 more years. Uh, we deem that it has brought advantages to both Egypt and Israel. We uh, implement it uh, in good faith. Uh, and we will continue to do so. So what are the consequences if Israel follows through on threats to attack Rafah, where there are 1.3 million Gazans sheltering, uh, they have nowhere else to go. So what's the consequence? Well, let me not try to uh, speculate on a hypothetical, but uh, it would certainly be uh, a, a very dramatic turn of events that will have uh, severe repercussions on the, the crisis, on the Palestinian cause, on uh, Egypt's security, and, and we will deal with it. What do you believe the impact would be if this war is raging at this level in three weeks when Ramadan begins? Devastating. Uh, I think every day we should not be in a position to accept the continuing impact on the uh, civilians. Everyone should do everything possible to uh, end this confrontation and, and deal with the legitimate concerns. As appalling as uh, October the 7th was, it, it still is not in a vacuum. The, 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 the issue of occupation, the issue of Palest Palestinian statehood, the long si cycle of, of violence and counter-violence have all compounded the, the difficulties of resolving uh, the conflict and, and living in peace uh, for the region. Finally, sir, the Senate has blocked 325 million of security assistance and the administration has decided to withhold that money from Cairo. And for you to be able to get that money as well as future money, you have to make, quote, specific human rights progress uh, as well as progress on political prisoners. So you've promised to U.S. officials, uh, I've been told, to reduce pretrial detention and to move toward releasing those prisoners. Have you made those moves? These issues are uh, addressed within our bilateral dialogue. Uh, whatever decisions the Congress makes, it makes uh, uh, by its prerogatives. Whatever decisions we make, we make uh, that we feel are in the best interest of the Egyptian people. But do you believe you've followed through on your promises about human rights? I believe that we will undertake our responsibilities in, in applying policy that is beneficial to the Egyptian people. And I think at this stage and what we see in Gaza, I think the, the discussion related to human rights needs to be a little bit more uh, insightful. And th that the issues Do you think it hasn't been insightful from oh, the yes, United States I, government? I, I, I'm speaking generally about the international community and, and how it is applying a single standard and what constitutes the rule of law and how is it applied, uh, whether it's applied fairly. So the issues of, of human rights uh, uh, and, and any perception that uh, any state is immune from criticism uh, in terms of its application of human rights uh, would, uh, would call into uh, question uh, the authoritative the, uh, nature of such, uh, such comments. Mr. Foreign Minister, thank you very much. Thank you. From quiet fields to busy city streets,
Farmers around the world have launched protests in recent weeks. They're demanding relief from what they say is a crisis. Ali Rogan reports on what's driving these protests and what it means for food supply and climate policies. They come in convoys of tractors, armed with the fruits, bread, even the livestock of their labor. From Italy to India, farmers are taking to the streets, sometimes facing violence, sometimes causing it, protesting policies they say kill their livelihoods. Agriculture has been on its knees for a long time, and we have reached the end of our rope. In fact, farmers in dozens of countries on six continents have been staging protests since 2021. This year, most protests have been in European countries and India. The grievances vary by country, but there's one common message. Farmers can no longer bear the burden of economic and climate policies. There's a sense of a rupture in the social contract between farmers and their governments. Danielle Resnick is a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute. In the EU, it's a sense that farmers are being forced to unfairly bear the burden of a lot of the, the EU regulations to meet uh, climate emission targets. In India, there's a sense that uh, farmers are, are overburdened. They're worried about various shocks, including climate shocks and they want some type of social protection. In Europe, those regulations include limits on pesticides and the amount of land they can harvest annually. Farmers there also worry about competition from abroad and Ukraine, which has temporary tariff-free access to EU markets. Stop grain from Ukraine. Stop the Green Deal. Stop deciding about our land. In India, farmers want Prime Minister Narendra Modi to expand a long-standing policy of setting minimum prices for certain crops. In 2021, Modi tried but failed to scrap the policy following an earlier round of protests. Farmers have been marching from the north, where the protests began, to the capital, but police and soldiers have blocked their way. It is not about whether we go to Delhi or not. We have not come here to clash with our soldiers. We just want our demands met for a law regarding the implementation of the minimum support price. Experts say the protests are politically timed. Both the Indian and European parliament elections are set for this spring. I think um, farmers unions are being politically savvy in some ways and trying to, to get their, their issues on the top of the political agenda. Even though we think of them as kind of small-scale farmers, they are pretty politically powerful. And ahead of the votes, leaders seem to be listening to the farmers. France scrapped a plan to end tax breaks for tractor diesel. And the EU abandoned a plan to reduce pesticide use and postponed a deadline for farmers to leave some land fallow to improve biodiversity. It also omitted farmers from a recommendation to reduce greenhouse gases by 90 percent by 2040. Farmers need a worthwhile business case for nature-enhancing measures. Perhaps we have not made that case convincingly. But many stakeholders, like some European moderates and environmentalists, believe politicians are caving to farmers to prevent them from deepening alliances with far-right groups who've taken up their cause. And they note that agriculture is a major driver of climate change, accounting for more than 10 percent of the EU's total greenhouse gases. I think an attack of the green agenda is seen as really an opportunity for uh, right-wing parties to, to gain more seats in, in the parliament at the expense 
of green parties. They see this as an opportunity to really mobilize on grievances to, to perhaps forward their own agenda around migration policies and other types of nativist policies um, that would resonate with some of EU farmers' concerns. But some experts say leaders must find ways to make the transition less burdensome for farmers and the entire system they represent. Most of the world's food is produced by small farms, family farms, and they're the ones who don't have the depth, the financial depth and the resources to really shoulder this burden in the way that they're being asked to. They are being asked to adjust to environmental regulations uh, in, a, in a fast period of time. Chris Hagedorn is a professor of global food politics at Sciences Po in Paris. This is where governments can step in and start spending money differently to address the cost, not only to these farmers, but the cost that we're seeing from environmental damage, climate change, temperature increases, uh, violent weather increases. After all, as the protesters' signs say, without farmers, there is no food. For PBS News Weekend, I'm Allie Rogan. Earlier this week, the latest entry in the new race for space commerce lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center. If all goes well, it would be the first ever private spacecraft to land on the moon. According to data from the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, 2023 was a record year for launching satellites, probes, landers, and other objects into space. But scientists worry that those plumes of exhaust that trail rockets arcing into the skies could be scattering harmful pollutants into the pristine upper layers of the Earth's atmosphere. Freelance science journalist Shannon Hall recently wrote about this new era of space pollution in the New York Times. Shannon, what's in this rocket exhaust and why are some scientists concerned about it? That is a great question. Right now, rocket exhaust has black carbon in it and scientists are very concerned that black carbon, which is black, will absorb the sun's radiation and heat the atmosphere. Specifically, they're worried that it's going to heat the stratosphere. We care about the stratosphere tremendously because it is home to the ozone layer, which protects us from the sun's harmful radiation. So if we're increasing the number of rocket launches, we could actually increase the risk of skin cancer, cataracts, and immune disorders here on ground because we have harmed the ozone layer. Were there concerns about, I think you said this in this article, that there, at one point there were concerns about a hole being over the Kennedy Space Center. But what happened? What did they find about that? We did worry about that at the beginning of the space shuttle era. We actually found that there weren't enough rocket launches at the time to really create a cataclysmic issue. The, hose, the ozone hole disappeared relatively quickly. The same might not be true going forward as we just launch more and more rockets into orbit. And also for more and more sites, is that a concern as well? It is a concern, yes. We are just going to be seeing a tremendous increase um, in the number of rocket launches from multiple sites across the globe as various government agencies and private agencies as well join in this new space race. Now this concern about the black soot uh, heating up the, the stratosphere. Is this something that research has shown or is this, uh, not, I don't want to say speculation, but sort of a theory, theorizing this could happen? 
That's a great question because the research is really just now catching up <laughs> to the speed of the space race, but there have been a number of studies in recent years. Um, one study showed that rocket emission is 500 times better at heating the stratosphere than aviation, for example. Another study published in 2022 found that if we increase the number of rocket launches by just a factor of 10, we could actually increase, we could warm the stratosphere by as much as two degrees Celsius in various places. And that would degrade the ozone layer over much of North America, all of Europe, and a good chunk of Asia as well. So we are starting to see evidence that this could drastically harm the stratosphere. Does anyone regulate the exhaust coming out of these rockets, either in the United States or anywhere in the world? No. I spoke with a number of sources who actually compared this to the Wild West. There are no regulations with respect to atmospheric pollution from rocket exhaust right now. What are the potential solutions people looking at? What I mean, is there such a thing as green rocket fuel? That's a great question. There really is no such thing as green rocket fuel, because even if we were to change from hydrocarbon fuel, which is what we're using now to say something that emitted water, water is actually a greenhouse gas at these upper layers of the atmosphere. So no matter what, we are likely going to cause harm on the environment, but we can certainly tweak how much harm is caused. That is, that is the ultimate hope. How And tweak it how? How would they do that? So scientists are hopeful that they can do the research to know how many rocket launches will be too many, know what types of fuel to use, know what types of materials to use so that we don't cause quite as much harm on the environment. But again, this is really just an open question right now. Scientists are at the beginning stages of their research to try to understand where we are and what the future might look like. Now, there's also an issue about old satellites sort of falling out of orbit uh, and disintegrating as they come into the Earth's atmosphere. What's the issue there? What's the concern there? Yeah, so the issue is that what goes up must come down, right? These satellites are actually designed to fall back to the Earth after five to 15 years. We do that so that we don't leave them in orbit. That creates a space junk problem, a different story. And we don't want them to impact the Earth, right? We don't want to cause a hazard to life here on Earth. So they're designed to fall back to the Earth and disintegrate in the atmosphere. And scientists don't know what impact that's going to have on the atmosphere yet. But if they're disintegrating, they're going to leave a stream of pollutants in their wake. And one study, a NASA study last year, actually took a jet up into the stratosphere and sampled the most common particles in the stratosphere. And they found that within 10% of those particles were pollutants from these disintegrating satellites. Now, 10% might not sound like a lot, but given that we're at the very beginning of this new satellite race, that was actually pretty alarming. Freelance science journalist Shannon Hall, thank you very much. Thank you. Now online, while boil water advisories in major cities are on the rise due to climate change. All that and more is on our website, pbs.org newshour. 
And that is PBS News Weekend for this Saturday. Next time, why eating disorders, once thought to be more prevalent in women and girls, are on the rise among males. I'm John Yang. For all of my colleagues, thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. The Underground Railroad. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus.